There are at least four different kinds of verses in the Bible. Certainly, there are many different kinds and genre of books in the Bible written by many authors over hundreds of years and all inspired by the Holy Spirit. But throughout this canon of Scripture, there are at least four different kinds of verses, those that are clear, those that are cloudy, and those that are stormy. But maybe the most important are those verses that we have never seen before. This is what we will discuss today on Deep in Scripture. Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined again today by Dr. Kenneth Howell. It's great to be here, Marcus. Thank you for inviting me. It's always good to join you, Ken, uh, to take time to look at the Word. And Mm. today we're going to do something a little different. Uh, Rather than focus on one particular passage, we're going to step back a little bit and, and, and recognize that from our experience, and I think the experience of many others, uh, who, who love the word and study the word, uh, encounter different kinds of scripture. Not so much genre, and that's a, that's a whole other discussion, poetry and history, uh, as well as apologetics. But what we're talking about is you encounter verses, some of which are easy to understand. They just seem to need no other explanation. And that's what we might coin clear verses. And then we encounter other scriptures that, whoa, uh, this needs some explanation. They, especially as pastors, before you or I dropped them in front of our congregation, we needed to add to that verse a clarification. Because we also know that some verses, if taken wrongly, have led to great misunderstanding, if not calamity. And then there was a third grouping of verses that uh, even a, an easy expo- a, an additional explanation didn't seem to solve the problems that were in the verse itself. And before we go on to that fourth category, was that your experience, Ken, especially oh, oh. from the time you were a pastor? Well, exactly. And, and it, the reason it was, I think, is because, um, you know, several factors, but if verses are quoted over and over again, like John three sixteen, for example, or you know the one in uh, <clears throat> John fifteen where Jesus says, "I am the the vine, you are the branches." If people quote these over and over again, then people begin to assume that they know what they mean. Mm-hmm. So they become clear to us, right? And they become clear to us because of our backgrounds. But then there's verses that don't seem to fit into our theology at certain points, and that's where we have to go into the explanations. But it seems like then in every form of Christian theology that's come down the pike, um, there's also verses that don't seem to fit into anybody's theology very well. <laughs> so, so it's it's a it's a difficult task, um, and that's what we as teachers of the Word uh, sought to do was to explain that to people. And sometimes it was a difficult challenge. You you, you mentioned this idea of we hear a verse over and over and over again, and because we're we become comfortable with it uh we presume we just know what it means and you know i'm wondering one of the dangers of that is that we also if we encounter a verse like we call cloudy verse that needs an explanation 
or a stormy verse that you know we we enter into an interpretation and proclamation of the verse only with fear and trembling that yeah. what happens is we look around for an explanation and we find mm-hmm. one from someone that that we trust that gives us an explanation and okay we're off the hook now we've got an explanation yeah, and exactly. then from the pulpit we deliver that to our people and assume that the subject is closed yeah, well, I think there's a famous verse in John chapter 20 about that, about the forgiveness of sins that sort of comes into that category. We we find explanations for it. We think, okay, well, that, that settles that. And uh, we begin to accept that. But, you know, that's one of the, I think that's just human laziness. We, It happens in science. It happens in business. Yep. People just uh, settle for very uh, superficial explanations. That's one of the beautiful things that I appreciate so much about you inviting me to be on this program, because here we get to dig deeper into the Word. And, you know, uh, Marcus, I'm sure you feel the same way, that the Word of God can never be exhausted. You simply, every morning you can get up and read the scriptures and let them speak to you in power and and with uh, conviction and grace. Well, that gets us into that fourth category, which is these verses that we never saw. Um, And in the sense, Ken, that, you know, I can, the verse I'm going to share later, which is a verse I never saw, was the verse that began my journey to the Catholic Church. And it comes from a section of scripture that I'd preached on and studied over and over many times and all of a sudden boom there's a verse i never saw and would you say that this idea of a scripture that we never saw fits into what you've just said that the daily the reason that our lord encourages us the church encourages us to read scripture every single day is because we trust that this book inspired by the holy spirit has something new for us every time we go to it yeah, absolutely. And what we begin to, I mean, I know this in my, uh, you know, 16 or 17 years as a Catholic now, there are things that I've seen in the Bible in a new light that I'd never saw before. And it's because my mind is in a different mode of receptivity. And so every day as we grow, especially as we grow in grace, we get greater receptivity toward God. And therefore we see things in a way we didn't see them before. You know, I remember, before we get into this, I remember a story from seminary. And Ken, I'm sure you've got them that you could share. But when I studied homiletics many centuries ago, um, <laughs> my homiletics professor, one of his hobbies was collecting bad exegesis that he heard. Mm-hmm. And he was sharing a story of driving somewhere in the South on a Sunday morning. And he was listening to the radio of a local preacher. And what he heard so made, so startled him and made him laugh, he had to pull his car over uh, because he had heard the preacher who was preaching on Jesus warning his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. So you have this verse where Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And this particular preacher was telling his congregation that Jesus was telling his disciples that they did not need the fear the leaven of the Pharisees, because there were 12 of them. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I can see why he cited that as a, 
as a uh, example of faulty exegesis. Wow. Yeah, I mean, what does he mean by the leaven of the Pharisees? We come to an explanation, but here's an example of somebody coming up with an explanation (laughs) that is wrong, misunderstands the scripture from the first place, and then that's passed on to a group of people who, because they trust their pastor, well, that must be true. So they, for the rest of their life, interpret that passage to mean that the reason we don't need to fear the 11 Pharisees because there were 12 apostles. That has nothing to do with what Jesus is saying. And that's why we love doing this program, frankly, audiences, because the Word of God is rich, Mm. is rich, and there are spiritual blessings in the reading and the praying and the sharing and the proclamation of Scripture. But we're called to be deep in Scripture so that we make sure we interpret it, we hear it, within the rule of faith. So, Ken, what I'd like to do is we've got these four different kinds of Scripture that we're proposing, and I'd like you and I both to give some examples for our audience, really to to wet their whistle, to get them to look deeper into Scripture. So from a clear passage, you mentioned the one that was always, from the time I was a young man, what I considered a verse that needed no further explanation. And I think I heard it the very first time when I listened to Billy Graham as a young man doing his crusade from Boston, I think it was, on broadcast on the television when I would think seven years old or something, and I remember him preaching on John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life period. And I I do believe that's one of the most common verses that people assume is clear. And the reason I think that there's um, proof of that assumption of clarity is that we go to a football game and there's somebody holding up a card that says JN316. <laughs> and the assumption is that that verse, a person watching on TV sees JN316, goes to their Bible, opens it up, reads it, it's clear, they get on their knees, they accept yeah. Jesus, and now they're saved. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, and, and, and it is clear in, in many ways. Uh, but then you could ask questions like, well, okay, so what does it really mean to believe in him, you know, when it says whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? Well, it, I was going to say that that verse, I mean, I could have picked that verse for all four categories. Uh, yeah, Because... True. You know, it seems clear. It seems with explanation. But if you look deeper, especially those that want to pull that verse out of the context as if it's eternally clear in every way, look at how little the verse says about Mm -hmm. God, about church, about Jesus, uh, about the Holy Spirit, about what it means to believe, about what it means to have eternal life. You know, all that stuff is not explained but we bring to it our presumptions. And therefore, because it fits into our theology, it's very clear. Yeah. Now, Ken, what about you? You've got probably a long list of verses that you consider clear, especially from your background. Well, I think one of them that is, comes in is Ephesians chapter 1, um, verses 3 to 11, where Paul talks about being predestined because I was raised and was educated as you were as a Calvinist. Um, and... <clears throat> This is a passage where where Paul says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined, or as the Greek probably means, he predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now he goes on in the passage to talk about the mystery of God's will and how this is manifested through time. But what I focused on and thought was very, very clear was that it says in the text that uh, before the foundation of the world, God chose us, he predestined us uh, to be his sons through Jesus Christ. Um, And then I thought that this meant that therefore um, all the elect are going to be in heaven and all the non-elect are going to be in hell. And there was no more discussion of it uh, for me. Well, I came to find out later on in theological study that, well, the, the question of predestination is a pretty a pretty difficult one. It's difficult for Calvinists. It's difficult for Catholics. Um, yep. And so this verse was not as clear as I thought that it was. But at the time, it was very, very clear to me. Ken, can you think of, and this is a good point, can you think of a verse that would be completely clear in another Christian tradition, but was not clear in your own. Oh, yeah. Um, I've got the text right. I think it's 1 Peter 3.20, where it says, corresponding to uh, the the Noahic flood, uh, Peter then says, and baptism now saves you. Now, that would be very clear to a Catholic or to a Lutheran, because the Catholic and the Lutheran share the belief that baptism is um, the sacrament of justification or salvation. And he says that just as Noah was saved through water in a way, so it corresponds in its antitype that baptism now saves you. Now, that was very difficult for me as a Calvinist to believe because even though we honored baptism and believed it was important, we didn't believe, you couldn't go so far as to say that baptism saves you. And then, so the next verses that go on, not in the in the cleansing or the putting away of the, the stain of the flesh, but in the appeal of a conscience to God, we used that phrase to mean that it's not this mechanical kind of thing, that's ex opere operata that Catholics and even and even Lutherans believe. But to a Lutheran, that's very clear. Baptism saves you. <laughs> it wasn't clear to a Calvinist. I mean, that's a really good point. So here's a scripture that is a, a whole group of Christians, it's as clear as a bell. But yeah. to other Christians who have either broken away from these groups or have been antagonistic theologically to these groups, that verse needs an explanation. You know, another verse that... I think of, I can't find it right now, Ken, you probably can remember it. It's that verse where Jesus talks about giving, pressed down, overflowing. Oh, yeah. I think it's in Luke. Luke, it's in Luke, yeah. Where it, it, you know, but that verse, amongst others, is used and is clear to those that are in the health and wealth gospel to believe that if you believe in Jesus, he'll bless your life. If you believe in Jesus, you're not going to have sicknesses. And if you're suffering, there's something wrong with your faith. And they have, you know, they'll take the verse from Isaiah, by his stripes you are healed. Well, mm-hmm. to them, that's a clear verse that connects your giving with your receiving. Right. And builds an entire theology around this idea that if you are in Jesus Christ, you should be rich. You should be he- healthy. Uh, you should have no problems. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't clear to me and at all because that's not what either 
as a Catholic or as a as a, a mainline Protestant that I believe. This, I mean, there's so many verses we could use of this. In fact, you used an example of verses that really were cloudy to us, but clear to someone else. Mm-hmm. For me, a, um, a scripture that uh, I think is an obvious cloudy one. Um, in fact, the knee-jerk answer makes it so clear to most of us, but an example is Matthew 18, verse 8 through 9. <clears throat> When our Lord said, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. I mean, okay, here's an example of what did Jesus mean Mm -hmm. what he said? And sadly, Ken, you and I both know historically that there have been people that are so literally committed yeah. to Scripture that they look at that and they say, well, you know, they're, now they spend the rest of their life without an eye or without a hand because this is what Jesus told them to do. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, this, this verse also shows uh, there's a number of um, ways in which this illustrates <clears throat> the problems with assuming we know what the Bible means at a certain point. Um Let's take Origen, the famous church father. There's no doubt about it. <clears throat> Among the Greek fathers of the church, Origen was perhaps the most learned of them all. But, <clears throat> and he has enormously good interpretations of the Bible at points, but he was distorted in his personal understanding of, of, of his own sexuality that he actually castrated himself based upon this verse. And um, I think what that shows is that even though you may be very brilliant, yeah. uh, you you can really, if you're psychologically twisted in some way, you can you can misunderstand things in a very uh, profound way. What I think Jesus is saying here, of course, he's using hyperbole or exaggeration for effect, right? Yeah. And this is one of the keys about learning how to read. Uh, not only the scriptures, but poetry and literature, and it's unfectionately one of the one of the real um, uh, lacks in our culture today. In fact, this common core curriculum that people are talking about is really a dumbing down of people's reading of the literature of of what literature is, and they're going to misunderstand things. They may not misunderstand this passage, but they'll misunderstand many because they don't have experience with literature. Jesus is making a point about the seriousness of sin and about getting rid of it. Ken, would you say that, in fact, it is this, uh, this issue of clearness, cloudiness, storminess of scriptures that, in fact, sadly, is what divides Christians? Well, I think it is, yeah. And, and this, is what, um, this is why the understanding of, of the Catholic uh, ethos or the, the, the milieu of Catholicism is so important because it's, it's a milieu or an ethos of let's seek what this means together. It's not just me and my myself and I going off and doing something. You mentioned the prosperity preachers that are out there. Um, 
they really do offend me. I don't get offended easily, but they really offend me because... Well, Ken, wait in, a second. In, do you have Cadillac faith or Volkswagen uh, faith? <laughs> no, I have Volkswagen faith. That's uh, definitely... Yeah, oh, actually, Honda Civic 96, was, you know, barely running uh, faith. And, of course, they would say, oh, my, you need Cadillac faith, right? Uh, but but what it, it's clear what the, what these people are doing is that they're... They're believing what they want to believe, right? Rather than submitting humbly to the whole body of Christ. And that's what we do as Catholics. We, we we may have an interpretation and then we go to the church and we say, Okay, brothers, sisters, fathers in the faith, um, tell us um, are we within the bounds here of orthodoxy or, or have we gone outside of them? I mean, here's an example. This verse sounds very clear. Our Lord, these are the words of our Lord. He yeah. says in Matthew yeah. five forty eight, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly yeah. Father is perfect. Yeah. It seems yeah. clear to me. Was that clear to you as a Presbyterian or me? No. Oh, not at all. <laughs> we didn't really know what it was. And in fact, um, I puzzled over that very verse uh, for a long time. And just to share with you something I'm reading right now, St. Augustine's tracks or commentary on the little letter of First John, oh, which of course oh, is all yeah, about the yeah. love of God, yep. he he cites the verse that you just quoted in in Matthew, uh, is it five? Yep. Um, and um, he says, "What does it mean to be perfect? As your heavenly Father is perfect." And he says, "It means to be perfected in love." And then, what does it mean to be perfect in love? But to have the grace and the power to love even your enemies. And, of course, if you look at the context there in Matthew 5, that's exactly what Jesus is saying, that God causes his rain and his sunshine to fall upon the just and the unjust. And so perfection is a perfection of love, which is a perfection to love even those who hate you. And the biggest problem is in this issue of clear or cloudy is it points out the, one of the flaws of the whole idea of sola scriptura and private interpretation yeah. is that we feel that on an individual basis that we've got to have an answer for these verses, especially for a pastor. We yeah. encounter a cloudy verse like this perfection verse if we're in the tradition of Calvinism. We've got to have an answer. Ken, um, what about you? I'm sure there's a long list, but did you have a particular cloudy verse you'd like to bring up? Well, there were there were a number, but one of them that... that I really puzzled over for a long time was in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 24, where the author of Hebrews says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were rolled in heaven, and to a judge who is God of all, or you could say to God who is a judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Well, the reason that that verse was, was cloudy to me was because um, I believed that we are justified by faith and by faith alone. I believed that we were saved by the grace of God, and here in this uh, epistle, after the, he's talked about the superiority of Christ and the superiority of the new covenant, he contrasts Moses' experience in the verses just preceding the ones I read, 
Those verses, Moses is on the mountain, but the Christian, he says, has come to Mount Zion. And I had to sort of puzzle, well, where where's the Christian come to Mount Zion? Oh, we're not here. We're not in the city of the heavenly Jerusalem yet. And yet what I came to realize then, the more that I came to understand the supernatural power that is in the Mass, is that the author here is talking about the union of earthly worshipers in the Mass to the heavenly church. And that's why he says that you come to the spirits of just men made perfect. Well, that's exactly what the saints are. They're righteous men on earth who now are spirits in heaven, and they are have been made perfect. That you've come to these things. Uh, in other words, in, in my Presbyterian or my evangelical experience, I really didn't have a living context in which to understand these verses. But now, in the beauty of Catholic liturgy or the, or the Mass, I now begin to understand these words come alive to me because they show me the very nature of the Mass as the union of heaven with earth. That's a great example of a verse that became more clear, in fact, very clear, once you saw the, the wider context of the church. In this verse particularly, Ken, was it your study of the early church fathers that also made it a much more clear a presentation of truth. Well, in in that passage in Hebrews, yeah, about because he talks about the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Uh, if you read the homilies of Saint John Chrysostom, uh, you'll see that he says over and over and over again how uh, in in commenting, for example, on Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah saw God in the vision and he heard the angel saying, "Holy, holy, holy." St. John Chrysostom quotes this text, and he shows how the union of the litur- the divine liturgy, as they called it in the East, the union of the, the divine liturgy was this union of heaven and earth. And then it also showed me in this text how the, uh, when it says that you, when you come to worship, you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Uh, the, the Catholic Church teaches that the very the profound mercy of God is given is given to and through the mass to the believer. So when it speaks of the blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel, that's the blood of Jesus that is crying out for mercy for sinners. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's a, another great example of how a a scripture that can be cloudy, um, unclear, uh, a mystery. How do you fit this into my faith? And then once you see the wider context, both of the history of the church, as well as the theology of the church, the liturgy of the church, the verse not only becomes clear, but then you start realizing that you really never saw it before at all. That what you were thinking you saw and heard wasn't really the scripture itself. I mean, I could think of other verses like Matthew 16 about Peter being the rock. It wasn't clear to me. It was stormy. But once I saw it through the eyes of the church, I saw the beauty of it. Now, we're going to take a break, Kent. We'll come back. We'll look at some stormy verses. And then a few verses for you and I both that were verses we never saw that brought us closer to our Lord in his church. We'll see you in a bit. Hello, I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation 
is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. Next time on The Journey Home, join Marcus as he welcomes former Southern Baptist Charlie McKinney to the show. See what convinced him to make the journey home to the Catholic Church. That's on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. I'm joined uh, once again by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, just a reminder that if you go to deepinscripture.com, you'll find oh, a large archive of, oh boy, five, six years of Deep in Scripture programs. You also connect to uh, a way of sending us your questions and comments. We would love to hear from you. We would like to, in fact, include some of your questions and comments in the program. Uh, to discuss for Ken and I on how uh, we can all be deeper in Scripture and therefore deeper in Christ and His Church. On this program, we've been looking at this idea that there are at least four different kinds of Scriptures uh, in the Bible, those that are clear, or at least we think they're clear. Usually they're clear because of our particular tradition. Some verses that are clear to us may not be clear to others because of their Christian tradition. And that whole idea of that some verses are clear to some people and not to others is really getting us back to, sadly, why we are divided from one another as Christian brothers and sisters. Because uh, in many ways driven by the idea of sola scriptura and uh, independent individual interpretation of Scripture, which leads to all these different conclusions— and sometimes, Ken, I've, I've often thought that you could take any three or four verses and start a new religion, <laughs> yeah. you know, by just grabbing three or four verses that you like, making those the clear foundation yeah. of Scripture, and then a whole— re- In fact, would you say, Ken, and I might be uh, being unkind here, I don't mean to be, but that to a certain extent, Calvinism itself is based on the the idea that God is sovereign, and oh, that yes. becomes the clear principle out of which the rest of Scripture is interpreted. Yeah, and sovereign for, for Calvinists uh, means that uh, there's nothing that human being can do that can 
change his will at all. Now, that gets into a very uh, profound uh, philosophical and metaphysical uh, discussion about the uh, relationship between free will or between the will of human beings and the will of God. And anybody who thinks that they can really nail that down, I, I think they're being presumptuous. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, the idea that, that the Calvinist uh, asserts above all, that's that's the keystone to their whole theology, the sovereignty, uh, the will of God. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a difficult... Uh, think for them to think outside that box. In fact, because of holding that one idea, that philosophical idea, that God is sovereign um, over everything else, what that does is it takes dozens of verses that on the surface seem really clear about our individual responsibility to choose God, our Lord calling us to choose the narrow way, to turn from sin, all those verses that seem clear, all of a sudden, from, to a Calvinist, they become cloudy, if not stormy, because this freedom of the will that is implied in those verses seems to go contrary to the idea of the sovereignty of God. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. Yeah. And of course, that, that's why Luther and Calvin both had problems with any of the verses that called for obedient living called for works. That's why Luther wanted to get rid of the whole book of James. To Luther, the whole book of James was a stormy book. <laughs> yeah, And he wanted to set it aside because it didn't fit with his theology of the depravity of the will. Well, I think I recall you saying something about a text in John that was uh, very stormy for you. Is that right? Yes. Let's, let's look at the stormy verses. Uh, and these are verses that just did not fit our theology. Okay. And I can make a number of lists, you know, but just one that uh, was a problem for me as a Protestant minister was John twenty twenty three, uh -huh. uh, where Jesus says, after he had breathed the Holy Spirit on his apostles, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And this verse was cloudy in a number of ways for me as a pastor. One was the, I knew the idea that Catholics held that this verse pointed to the priest's, uh, the sacrament of confession and going to a priest and the authority, therefore, through ordination that a priest has to forgive sins. So that, you know, that didn't fit with my Protestant understanding of ordination, of the priesthood of all believers. Um, so what do we do with this? But second of all, this idea that our Lord goes on to say that if you retain the sins of any, mm -hmm. they are retained. You know, how do you explain the idea that our Lord gives to us this authority to not forgive a sin, to well, retain I, it? I remember struggling with this very question. <laughs> and, and as I did, as I read this verse, especially because in the preceding verse or two before it says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. In other words, Jesus is saying to the apostles, the Father sent me. And how did he send me? Well, he sent me with authority to forgive sins. And so now I'm conveying that same authority upon you. And boy, this was puzzling to me. How in the world could a man have the authority to forgive sins? Well, 
I went to my standby, my my great uh, mentor, John Calvin, (laughs) to his commentary (laughs) on this passage, and I was going to see what he said about it. And do you know what he said? Well, he just asked a question. Who could ever believe that God would give the authority to forgive sins to men? I thought, what? (laughs) That seems to be exactly what Jesus is saying here. And, uh, but, and and he he said, no, he does not, and and Calvin goes on to say, he does not give to others what he retains for himself. And then I thought, yeah, but he says right here that if you forgive the sins, they're forgiven. If you retain them, they're retained. So he seems to be giving them the same authority that he had on earth. But Calvin simply could not believe that yeah. that was the case. I mean, there's an example where, yeah, explains it away, then moves on. And once you have that explanation as a Calvinist yeah. pastor, right. you just assume that's true. I mean, Luther even is quoted a couple times when people challenged him on his interpretation. He said, you just tell him Dr. Luther said so, and that's it. Uh, you know, and, and what do you do? You know, another passage in the same book just to, that goes with this is when Jesus promises the Consular, the Spirit of Truth. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And in John chapter 16, when he says, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. When the Spirit of Truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not mm-hmm. speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Well, the reason this was a cloudy verse for me, or maybe a stormy verse, is because of my theological presumption, is that when Jesus was speaking in John 16, he was speaking to all of us. He was speaking Mm -hmm. to all Christians who therefore received the Holy Spirit. Well, if that's true, when we receive the Holy Spirit, then wait a second, what does it mean that he's guiding us into all truth? Because I knew, as a Presbyterian pastor, I knew hundreds of fellow Christians who disagreed with me on many points of theology, but we all received the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. So what's the problem here? You know, it's all of us, or is it, there's a very confused Holy Spirit. But when you see the context of John, that the you that he's speaking to is not at the surface all of us in general, but he is speaking to those that he hand-chose to be his apostles. That's who he's giving initially the Holy Spirit to so that they would have the truth and therefore yeah. could carry on the deposit of faith. Well, this you point, you're pointing out one of the uh, major uh, differences, I think, between, uh, again, the ethos or the milieu or the thought forms of Catholicism in distinction from um, Protestantism. Protestantism kind of has an underlying either-or mentality about it. In other words, if the Spirit is given to me, then I don't need uh, some authoritative uh, interpreter like the church or the magisterium. Whereas the Catholicism says, well, the Spirit is given to me to understand, but I also have to be submissive to the magisterium of the church in 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 regard to problematic verses. The reason historically, Ken, is it's not true that the reason that we trust that the New Testament is infallible and inspired by God is because we believe that what Jesus said in John 16 is true, that when he gave the Spirit to his apostles, 
that therefore that spirit protected their thinking, that they remembered what Jesus had told them in a trustworthy way, and that the spirit guided them in the passing on of that truth to their disciples, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.2. In other words, you choose someone to pass it on, that we trust that the Holy Spirit has guided the bishops so that these books were inspired. Apart from that, it undergirds everything that we believe, including the inspiration of Scripture. Well, a good priest friend of mine has has mentioned several times, and I think Cardinal Newman talked about this too, that it's one thing to have an infallible deposit of faith, but if you don't have a way to pass on that faith infallibly, then you can't have an infallible faith, let's say, two or three or 20 generations down the road. There's no way that we could have an assurance of infallibility that what we believe is truly from God if it weren't passed on infallibly through the church. And not to say that not individuals don't. They have made mistakes. They do make mistakes. But as a whole, the church is protected by the overshadowing grace of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's a, I won't mention his name, but there's a well-known Calvinist theologian who in confronting this issue about Jesus giving the Holy Spirit and guiding us into truth, yet what about the canon that he makes the statement that what we have in Scripture is an infallible uh, uh, Scriptures, but an in, but a, but a fallible canon. Yeah, that's right, exactly, yeah. Yeah. And that's as you said, well, what do you yeah. end up with? You yeah. know, if you're not sure whether all the books are in the Bible or whether some of the books shouldn't be in the Bible, then how can you trust anything in the Bible? And that draws us yeah. back to the spirit that gave us the canon of Scripture through the church. Now, Ken, what about you? I'm sure there's a long list of stormy verses for you. How about an example? Well, I think the two that come to mind for me were, uh, first of all, Colossians one twenty four, where Paul says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He means for the Colossians' sake. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And then a second verse, well, on that one for just a moment, perhaps I should uh, emphasize that it, the, when he says that I am filling up what is lacking in the body of Christ, he uses a double um, compound verb there. There's a Greek word, pleiroo, means to fill. And then there's anapleiroo, which means to fill up. And then this is antanapleiroo, and that means to fill up instead what is what is not there. Now, th- what, I, what made me puzzle about this is Paul clearly is saying that there's something lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Well, what what could be lacking in the sufferings yeah. of Christ? They're sufficient for my salvation. Yeah. But what he's what he's saying, he's talking about the mystical body. Well, the idea that that Christ not only died for the church, but he lives in the church in an afflicted way, because the church suffers the sufferings of Christ. But this verse just puzzled the heck out of me because <laughs> I couldn't imagine how this could possibly be. And I looked at various Protestant commentators, and they were just as puzzled as I was. Yeah. About, but when you have the, the richer, more ancient view of the church as the mystical body, whereas St. Augustine says 
Christ is the head, the, the members are the body. And he doesn't just mean like a body. He means they really are the body of Christ in the world today. Then the verse, you know, begins to take on a greater meaning for me. Um, you had another one you wanted to share, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, the one in Second uh, Peter, uh, it says, uh, this is at the very beginning of Second Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and virtue, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from corruption that is in the world of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Well, as a Protestant, I never imagined that I could ever become a partaker of the divine nature. I mean, isn't isn't salvation being declared righteous because of my faith in Jesus Christ, or because Christ died for me, and therefore the gate of heaven or the door of heaven is open, um, and I'll never become God. So it sounds like Peter is saying here that we're going to become gods in some way. Well, even, uh, you know, you're an early church father more than myself, and I, I mean, Augustine made the statement, the, the brash statement in the eyes of many, ears of many, on base in this passage, I think it was Augustine that said that God became man that men might become gods. Yeah, that's right. And he was quoting it from Athanasius. So the the church fathers, East and West, believed this. And I remember writing a paper on this very verse in, in seminary, trying to figure out what the heck this means, <laughs> that we become partakers of the divine nature. And I never came up with an answer. And the reason is because I had a faulty philosophy. My philosophy was a legalistic one. Uh, it was one in which salvation is a legal transaction rather than a transformation of my being in to be like God. You know, the church fathers often said that in the fall of Adam and Eve, we retained the image of God, but we lost the likeness of God. And so our journey of faith is getting, becoming like God again in the similitude or the similarity of God and thereby partaking of his very nature. Well, there's an example, Ken, of how because of our theologies as Calvinists, um, Lutherans, where we see justification as an external covering yeah, right. over a person that at the core is not changed, how we had to take otherwise verses that could be very clear and and add explanations to them. And a good example is Second Corinthians 5.17, where Paul says that for anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. You know, that talks about the baptismal change in which we are born again through baptism and that we become children of God. You know, John says in 1 John 3, you know, we become sons of God, and, and, and we are sons of God. We've been changed. And so how that, this, this, the entrance of the divine nature, the Holy Spirit within us, that dwells within us, that changes us, you know, understanding that the, uh, theologically depends on where you're coming from in these different traditions. And, uh, you know, mm. a great example of how an entire Christian tradition has taken this passage, for example, and then gone theologically, what, what I would consider way off the deep end, 
or our Mormon brothers and sisters, whose theology is that they indeed become gods, and that our Lord Jesus was a brother of Satan, who was a man that became God. Yeah. And that we will too become gods on our own planets. I mean, that's, again, private interpretation of a passage that's taken out of, of the of the wider rule of faith of the church. Well, and th- this is where uh, I'm afraid uh, <clears throat> our Protest- our, our mainstream Protestants, you know, Lutherans and Calvinists and, and Methodists and so forth, they might uh, misunderstand the Catholic doctrine. When St. Athanasius and Augustine said that we become, that God became a man, that we might become God, um, they might equate that with what the Mormons are saying. But the Catholic Church makes very clear that we don't become God. In in eternity, we're st- we are human and we'll always be human, but there is a true metaphysical sharing that goes on, where God's nature, as by to speak, invades and pervades our nature, and that's how we live with God in heaven. That's different than the Mormon idea that, as you said, that we actually become a little God. Yeah, yeah. in fact, I would encourage. Uh, anyone listening that still questions this, in fact, I just found on the internet recently, I think you saw it too, Ken, where someone had looked in the catechism and saw what the church says on this and still thinks the Catholic Church is heretical. And I would encourage you to go look at the catechism and read the whole context. But Ken, because of time, I want to move on to the verses that we never saw. This could be an entire program and we might do this. I will tell the audience I've done an entire program on EWTN called The Verses I Never Saw. Um... And, you know, Lord willing, I'm trying to write a book right now called that. Um, of Really, Ken, it gets to the idea that as I look back on my whole journey of faith, my whole life, um, and how the Lord in his mercy um, still loves me, though the worm that I am, uh, yet often it's through verses of Scripture that I previously had never recognized or seen or heard that our Lord has used to open me up to the fullness of his grace and really recognizing, as John the Baptist says, that he must increase and I must decrease. It's a long journey growing in humility. And I could list a lot of verses here, but probably that verse that awakened me more than any verse to the beauty of the Catholic Church was that verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul says, if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Now, the reason, I mean, I had preached three months through the letters of Timothy, and I don't remember seeing that verse, because my knee-jerk assumption is that the Bible is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. I would have sworn that that's what the Bible taught. But mm-hmm. I won't go into the whole story, but when uh, this verse was pointed out to me by an old seminary classmate, Dr. Scott Hahn, it changed my life in the same way it changed hers to realize that it isn't the Bible that's the pillar and bulwark of church, but the Bible says that it's the church. Yeah, this this is a wonderful verse, and it had the same effect upon me because, like you, I mean, I had read this verse many times, but again, I, I didn't have the background to properly appreciate 
what Paul was saying, but as in the case when you heard uh, Scott Hans say that, and when someone pointed it out to me, it made me step back and say, whoa, wait a minute, what have I missed here in the past? Uh, this is a powerful verse that is the pillar and the the foundation of faith, of truth. And at first when I heard it, it didn't make me Catholic. It made me, okay, now wait a second. Do I say that my local Presbyterian church is the pillar and bulwark of truth? Hmm. Or my particular Presbyterian denomination when there's nine different separate Presbyterian denominations? Or about the Methodist or the Baptist, the Assembly of God, the Anglican Church, or the Health and Wealth God? Which one? And so Hmm. that gets us into a deeper study of what did Paul mean by the church? Of course, that could be a whole program. What about you, Ken? What about a verse you never saw? Well, a verse that I, like <laughs> you, I'm sure you, you said you read this one, but you didn't really see it. Here's one that I didn't really understand, where the story of our Lord's crucifixion in the in the Gospel of John, when it says that they were standing by the cross of Jesus, Mary and Martha, and Mary, uh, his mother, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and then it says that Jesus turned to his mother and the disciple whom he loved and said, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, uh, Behold your mother. And from that very hour, the usual translation is, From that very hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And I thought to myself, Hmm, what does this mean that he's the beloved disciple? <laughs> so I looked at various commentaries. I looked at it in the context. And what I didn't realize is that John is using a self-designation here. He calls himself the beloved disciple because what he wants to see is that he represents symbolically every Christian. In other words, every Christian, it really is a beloved disciple. But if that's true, then is he saying to the disciple, this is your mother? Who? Well, Mary then becomes the mother of Christians. And uh, it made me realize, wait a minute, maybe these Catholics aren't so crazy after all. I mean, they, 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 they talk about Mary the mother. I remember the first time I heard a Catholic, I was sitting at a table, I was at the University of Steubenville. And uh, I mean, I was still very much a Protestant, but I was on my journey. And I remember hearing a man use the phrase, blessed mother. And I went, what? Blessed what? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I never thought of Mary as a blessed mother. But, of course, she said, all generations will call me me blessed. And here, John is saying that Mary's the mother of every Christian. Well, wait a minute. Uh, That really startled me. But it it got me to thinking a lot more in terms of what, what it means that Scripture comes alive with a new meaning when we read it to the eyes of the church. Ken, thanks for joining us today. Uh, This has been a wonderful study, and I hope you, the audience, appreciate it. I remember, Ken, that one of the great Protestant theologians, Karl Barth, once said that when he studies Scripture, he has the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And that's probably a good way to connect it with the world around us. But my encouragement to the audience is if you want to understand the depth of Scripture, have the Bible in one hand and the catechism in the other. And then it'll help you understand the full context of all the different kinds of scriptures that you encounter. Thanks, Ken, for joining us today. Thank you. And all of you, please go to deepinscripture.com for your questions or go to deepinscripture at chnetwork.org. God bless you. See you next week.